Today is October 6th, and we, the feast day of St. Bruno, we pray for Las Vegas and the events that has happened here. It is not clear the details of, but it is serious and a really real reality check. So we pray for the lives involved. May they be in your hands, O Lord. Biography of St. Bruno O Bonitas We see St. Bruno depicted in a white gown garment with a hoodie. It looks like a hoodie, but like a really long hoodie that has long sleeves. Anyway, he has a staff that looks almost like a handyman's cap staff with a whole handle on the top that looks like a Y. He's holding a red book with a big long cross where the cross is extremely high on the T for some reason. Around his halo there is a crown of seven, seven stars. And he's tilting his head and looking down toward the right. Bruno was born in Cologne around 10.30. He was still a youth when he was sent to Reims in France to study at one of the most reputable, reputed universities in Europe. After completion of his studies, he started teaching at that university. Twenty-six years later, 1056, Archbishop Gervais, oh, Gervais, chose him to be the rector of the schools of Reims. He held the office of rector of studies for twenty years. Towards the end of 1076, Bruno chose exile because of the conflict between Manassas and Journey, the Archbishop of Reims, and several important institutes of the city, including the Benedictine Monastery of St. Remy. On December 27, 1080, Gregory VII had to resolve to ask the clergy of Reims to drive the corrupt Archbishop away and to elect a new one. Bruno was chosen with this post of high responsibility and power in one of the highest ecclesiastical positions in the kingdom of Franks. But he had no other plans. He had decided to follow Christ to the desert. It was only after the feast of St. John Baptiste, approximately on June 24, that he and six companions 
reached the far end of the desert of Tartres. Under the guidance of Hugh. Who? Hugh. Like Huey, Dewey, and Louis, the young bishop of Grenoble. For six years, Bruno was able to enjoy the life he had chosen with his brothers. In the first months of 1090, Urban II, a former student of his, summoned him to Rome to help him in the service of the church. But just a few months later, Bruno obtained the Pope's permission to return to eremitic life, provided that he would establish his hermitage in southern Italy. Then, under the rule of the Norman princes, Bruno chose a vast desert in the diocese of Squillace, Santa Maria della Torre. This is where he died on October the 6th, 1101. From there, he wrote two letters full of the tender love which have been inspiring Carthusians for nine centuries. Bruno was beatified by Pope Leo X on 1514. The following is a biography from the Charter House of the Transfiguration website. <gasps> is this a Transfiguration class? Oh, yeah, babies. You better believe it. Let's go. Transfiguration. Yeah, pop quiz. What is that on the rosary? What mystery is that on the rosary? Oh, okay. Biography of Bruno by Father Andre Reviere, S.J. The 12 chapter titles below are links to the main chapters of Andre Riviere's, who lived between 1905 to 1999, biography of Saint Bruno. Andre Riviere's, S.J., entitled Saint Bruno the Carthusian, written in 1981 and translated by Bruno Becker, OSB, Ignatius Press, San Francisco, 1995. These extensive excerpts, almost the complete book, slightly edited for web purposes and updated, but without the footnotes and index. From the pen of a writer who wrote so many books on Carthusian history, and spiritually are inclined here for their inspirational value and for a fuller understanding of Bruno's soul through his historical circumstances. It is an important read for an admirer of Bruno and for any serious student of Carthusian charism.
charisma. The book is out of print. Boo-hoo. It is reproduced here. Woohoo! With the permission of Ignatius Press. Ignatius? Ignite. Are you lit? Let's get lit. End of introduction. We will be back with the prologue. Can you log it? Okay, let's see if we can breeze through the preface real quick. Prologue. On the June morning in 1084, about the time of the feast of St. John the Baptist, a small, serious-looking group of poorly clothed travelers left the bishop's house in Grenoble. Led by young bishop Hugh, they headed north and took the road to Seppi. After passing the last houses of the town, they entered the great forest. Cleared the Palaquit Pass and reached the Porte Pass at the altitude of 4,000 feet. From the pass, they descended into the village of St. Paride, Paridi Chartreuse through a path that today's road follows closely, but shortly before they reached Saint-Pierre, they turned left into the valley of Guersmort. This very narrow valley grew narrower little by little until it was enclosed between two steep cliffs. Only the stream and the path found an exit to the west. The gateway, as this valley was called, was the sole entry from the south. Gateway. Columbia Town Center. Gateway. A little beyond that, to the right, an oblong valley called the Wilderness of Chartreuse, extended north, northeast, about three miles. Its lowest point was 2,350 feet above sea level, and the highest was 3,450 feet. It was nearly enclosed on all sides by towering mountains, which, at the Grand Somme, reached an altitude of 6,000 feet, except for the gateway of the valley. There was only one other way to enter, and that was by Rarouchere Pass at 2,000, I'm sorry, at 4,250 feet toward the northwest through the valley. Of La Charrée itself was accessible only by the dangerous route of the Frau. Over two poor paths that were long, difficult, and very risky, one coming from Saint Laurent of the wilderness in the from oh in the west. Today called Saint Clarent 
Dupont, the other from St. Pierre de Entremont in the north. The latter went through the forest of Epares, the home of wild animals, and up over the Bon Vinent Pass to an altitude of 5,000 feet. In this wilderness, the travelers boldly summoned up their strength at the gateway of the valley, and since they were looking for the wildest place in this wild place, they climbed to the farthest point toward the north, where the wilderness terminated in a gorge that was enclosed by mountains so high that during most of the year the sun scarcely penetrated it. The fallen rocks and strangely shaped trees still reached for the sky so that at least their tops might gain the open air, light and warmth. Then, the little band stopped. They had arrived. Bishop Hugh told his companions they should build their huts here and make their dream of a hermitage a reality. Taking leave of his companions, he went back down to Grenoble with his personal escort. Dun, dun, dun. Seven men stayed in the wilderness. Who are they? Master Bruno himself, duh, the former chancellor of canon of the Church of Reims. Master Landuino from Lucca in Tuscany. A removed theologian, Stephen of Borg. B-O-U-R-G. When you put you in Borg, it's Stephen of Borg. And Stephen of Die. Seriously, Die. I was just wondering how you spelled Die this morning. D I E. Okay, great. With a iptong. Both canons of St. Roof. Rufus? Rufus? Roof. <laughs> Seriously, Hugh. Whom they called the chaplain because he was the only one of them who functioned as a priest. And. All right, number two, the laymen, okay? Andrew and Guergin, who were lay brothers. These seven had decided to lead an eremitical life in common, and for some time they had been looking for a suitable place to carry out their project. Prompted by the spirit and knowing surely how well forests in the Dauphine were suitable for solitude, Bruno came to Hugh, Bishop of Grenoble, to ask for shelter and advice. And Hugh, inspired by a wonderful dream, chose the wilderness of Chartreuse for Bruno and his companions. There you go. Human wisdom would say the selection was foolish. The harsh climates and heavy snowfalls, the poor soil that required so much labor to provide even meager nourishments for its inhabitants, the ruggedness of the terrain that made cultivation difficult in the forest, and inaccessible ability of the place during a considerable part of the year, so that there is no hope of obtaining help quickly should there be an emergency of fire or sickness. Everything is against establishing any sort of permanent dwelling for human beings in the wilderness of Chartreuse. Get it. 
and especially in this northern end of it. Several times, events demonstrated that these fears were well-founded. On Saturday, January 30th, 11.32, an enormous avalanche fell upon all the cells except one and killed six hermits and one novice. They were compelled to go back a mile and a half toward the south from the end of the wilderness where the Grande Chartreuse is located now. Bruno was more than 50 years old. Several of his, of his companions, notably Landuino, were no longer young. What secret desire impelled them to brave this solitude, whose severity Guiago, in his customs, consuetudines, or castumal, alludes to twice. Anyway, what discovery, what pearl of great price could make them live for a long time amid so much snow and such dreadful cold? Well, this is the mystery of the vocation, isn't it? By which God calls certain people to a purely contemplative life and all-embracing love. The mystery of hidden loves, lives, the mystery of hidden lives, of self-effacement, as it is commonly regarded with Christ, who effaced himself, the mystery of the prayer of Christ in the wilderness during the nights of his public life and at Gethsemane. The prayer of Christ that continues in certain privileged souls at every period in the history of the church. The mystery of being solitary while remaining present to the world. Of silence and the light of the gospel. Simplicity and the glory of God. This is the mystery we will try to discover in the soul of Bruno. End of prologue.
Master Bruno, the former chancellor, and Canon of the Church of Reims, Master Landuino from Lucca in Tuscany, a renowned theologian, Stephen of Borg, and Stephen of Dai. Both canons of Saint Ruf. Hugh, whom they called the chaplain because he was the only one of them who functioned as a priest, unquote, and secondly, layman. That's Hugh. Anyways, there's Andrew and Guerin. Who were lay brothers? Okay, great. You got them all. Great. Master Bruno, Master Louis, and No. What's up, Tuscany? I think Stephen Borg, Die Borg, Stephen, <laughs> Hugh, Andrew, wherein these seven had decided to leave, lead an eremitical, eremitical life in common, and for some time they had been looking for a suitable place to carry out their project. 
prompted by the spirit and knowing surely how well forests in the Daphne <laughs> were suitable for solitude. Bruno came to Hugh, Bishop of Grenoble at the time, to ask for shelter and advice. And Hugh, inspired by a wonderful dream, chose the wilderness of Charchus for Bruno and his companions. Human wisdom would say the selection was foolish. The harsh climate with heavy snowfalls, the poor soil that required so much labor to provide even a meager nourishment for its inhabitants, the ruggedness of the terrain that made cultivation difficult in the forest and inaccessible and the inaccessibility of the place during a considerable part of the year so that there was no hope of obtaining help quickly should there be an emergency or fire or illness. Everything was against establishing any sort of permanent dwelling for human beings in the wilderness of Chartreuse, and especially in this northern end of it. Several times, events demonstrated that these fears were well-founded, such as on Saturday, that was a few days ago, January 30th, 1132, the year 1132, an enormous avalanche, oh, I was just thinking about this, fell upon all of the cells except one and killed six hermits and one novice. They were compelled to go back a mile and a half toward the south of the end of the wilderness where the Grand Chartreuse was located now or is located now. Anyways, Bruno was more than 50 years old. Several of his companions, notably Landuino, were no longer young. What secret desire impelled him to brave this solitude? Whose severity, this sounds like Lord of the Rings, who, whose severity, Guino, in his customs, consuetudines, or custodumel, alludes to twice what, oh, customs, okay. Anyways, what discovery, what pearl of great price could have made them live for a long time amid so much snow and such dreadful cold? Dun, dun, dun. The mystery of vocation by which God calls certain people to a purely contemplative life and all-embracing love the mystery of hidden lies, of self-effacement, as it is commonly are regarded, with Christ who effaced himself. The mystery of the prayer of Christ in the wilderness during the nights of his public life and at Gethsemane, the prayer of Christ that continues in certain privileged souls at every period in the history of the church, the mystery of being solitary, while remaining present in the world of silence and the light of the gospel, simplicity and the glory of God. This is a mystery we will try to discover in the soul of Bruno. I just realized I read that already. Okay, here we go. St. Bruno's childhood. The six companions called him Master Bruno. It was not only because he was older, but or because he had once been their teacher at Reims, but because they regarded him highly and respected him. 
over them, he had a moral power, which radiated constantly from his whole character and could not be explained simply by their past. If they had come to the wilderness of Chartreuse, who are we praying for? Of course, we know who we're praying for, exactly, the club and all its members, especially Mark and Ariel. Over them, he had a moral power, right? Okay, God knows what's been going on lately. Which radiated constantly from his whole character and could not be explained simply by their past. Coach is calling you, dude. If they had come to the wilderness of Chartreuse, if they had joined this bold project, it was because he had led them, because they were drawn to follow him on account of the way he had clarified God's call for them and inspired confidence in them. Diego, where are you? The goodness, the, I, I pray for everybody who doesn't, I'm not in contact with anymore that I joined. The balance, the desire to seek God in absolute and total love that they saw in him captivated. And they were still captivated. He was the one who had formulated the project and carried it forward to its conclusion. So, who was this man who had such an effect on his companions? Practically nothing is known of his beginnings. Only Three facts are certain. He was born at Cologne. He, so he was a joyman. And his parents were not without nobility, for at least not without some good reputation in the city. Yeah, he lived in the middle of Saigon. Toward the middle of the 16th century, it was said that he belonged to the Hartenfaust family. The new way of winning. Even that he was descended from the Gen Emilia. <gasps> that was my name in Spanish class. Emilia. Gens A with an A. Emilia. Oh, yeah. Go Greeks. But there seems to be no foundation for that claim. Mm -hmm. It was based merely on an oral yes. tradition mm -hmm. at Cologne. Can you smell that? Perfume of a thousand roses. In a document of August, oh, my favorite month, the second, mm -hmm. that's so many days, <gasps> 10 days before, after, 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 1099, see, told you, whose authenticity, unfortunately, is contested. Yeah, 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 whatever. Bruno is said to have refused an important donation from the Count of Sicily and Calabria, He refused, runs the text, telling me he had left his father's house and mine where he had held the first for the purpose of being able to serve God with a soul completely unencumbered by the goods of earth. Get it? Got it? Unquote. The lack of authenticity in false documents is often camouflaged by some details that are true. Is there the case? Is that the case here? Hmm? 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 We'll see. What 
is the date of Bruno's birth. Hmm? We do not know that, but, you know, his mom always, he always keeps saying, I don't, I don't know, because, I mean, he just, he filled out his own paperwork in the islands, you know, and, and, and his mom never really gave him a date, so we really don't know when his birthday is. But, you know, we just celebrate on that day. We do not know that, but calculating from the date of his death, which was October 6, 1101, and from the events of his life, there is no great risk of error placing his birth between 1024 and 1031. What, plus or minus seven years? Good enough. Jubilee! The year 1030 best agrees with the events that mark his life. 1030. Bruno lived the first years of his childhood in Cologne. No document dating from that period has come down to us. Unfortunately. Dollar date. Day late and a dollar short. Yeah, that's it. It's 11.57. Anyways, Cologne. Ancient Colonia Claudia Ara Agrippinensis, which the Romans had founded between the Rhin and Meuse had been independent of county organization since the time of Otto the Great, who had placed his own brother Bruno, 953 to 65, upon the Archiepiscopal See. He had transferred the administration of justice to him and to him and to the archbishops who would succeed him, the rights of a count. When Bruno the future founder of the Carthusian was born. The name of the archbishop was... Hey, do you know who the president is? Peregrinatus. He was the one who crowned Henry III at A. Chin. Seriously? Seriously? On 1028. Seriously? Like, seriously? And therefore... <laughs> oh, my God. And thereby acquired for the archbishops of Cologne the right of crowning the emperor. Yeah, try to give him a house. They said no, not until your last one doesn't. So whatever. When Bruno lived, there was a historical connection between Cologne and Reims, which might be of some interest here. He found himself tra tragically involved in the grave disturbances. Archbishop Manassas, Virginia had stirred up at Reims, you know, I would just pull, uh, I, when, have you ever pulled out, like, exactly the number of pages or exactly the number of bills you reached in for? Just out of reach. Anyways, sorry. He had found himself tragically involved in the grave disturbance Archbishop Manasses had stirred up at Reims by his simoniacal election and by his conduct while at about the same time the Church of Cologne was experiencing a similar situation, <laughs> I should say. Archbishop Heidulf, 1076 to 78, 
sided with Emperor Henry IV of Germany against Pope Gregory VII in the struggle of investitures. Adolf's successor, Segawin, 1078-89, and Herriman III, 1089-99, continued his policy, at least during the period from 1072 to 1082. Bruno surely maintained some communication with his people at Cologne. He would have been aware of what was going on in his hometown. If this conjecture is correct, that great trial of conscience, which prompted him to leave Reims and join the resistance to Archbishop Manasses after that, uh, would have come from the two churches that were the most near him. But to return to Bruno's childhood, let's go back to the story. Archbishop Bruno I, through his talent for organizing, made Cologne not only the first city of Germany, wow, this is source of material right here, people, but also one of the importance in the world. Who's the arch? Uh, who's the patron saint of uh, of uh, Germany? Uh, 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 saint Pope Boniface. Yeah, that's it. Pray for us. Happy Thanksgiving. All right, I'm going to take a break. Bye. We are now going to another site called transfiguration.chartreuse.com. How do you spell chartreuse? C-H-A-R, by charcoal. T-R-E-U-X dot work. Book One, Chapter One. Prologue to the Statutes of the Carthusian Order. So St. Bruno established the Carthusian Order, and these are their books. There's five of them, and then there's letters and a whole bunch of other stuff. But there's, this is book one, chapter one. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. 1. Verse 1. To the praise of the glory of God, Christ, the Father's Word, has through the Holy Spirit from the beginning chosen certain men whom he willed to lead into solitude and unite to himself in intimate love. In obedience to such a call, St. Bruno and six companions entered the desert of Chartreuse in the year of our Lord, 1084, and settled there under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They and their successors, learning from, their ex learning from experience, gradually evolved a special form of hermit life, which was handed on to succeeding generations, not by the written word, but by example. 
at the repeated request of the other deserts founded in imitation of that at Chartreuse, Guise, the fifth prior of the Grand Chartreuse, committed to writing the organization of their way of life. This they all undertook to follow and imitate as the rule of observance and bond of love of their new-born family. Then, after the other priors of Carthusian observance had for a long time sought the permission of the priors and members of the Grand Chartreuse to hold a common chapter in that house, during the Priorate of Anthelm, the first general chapter was established to which all the houses, the Grand Chartreuse included, pledged themselves in perpetuity. It was also at this time that the nuns of Prebayon spontaneously embraced the Carthusian life. Such were the beginnings of their order. Verse 2. As time went on, the general chapter, in the light of experience and of new conditions that arose, adapted the form of Carthusian life, thus stabilizing and clarifying its structure. Since a mass of ordinances generally accumulated from this continuous and careful adaptation of our customs, the general chapter in the year of 1271 promulgated the ancient statutes made up of the fusion of these ordinances with the customs of Guise and the usages of the Grand Chartreuse into one coherent whole with a W. In the year of 1368, other documents were appended called the New Statutes. And in 1509, still further documents known as the Third Compilation. On the occasion of the Council of Trent, the three books then in existence were reduced to one body named the New Collection of the Statutes, the third edition of which was approved in specific form by the Apostolic Constitution, A.C. here, of Pope Innocent, X.I. the Ninth, Injunction, Injunctum Nobis. A new edition, however, revised and brought into conformity 
with the prescriptions of the Code of Canon Law, CCL, then in force, was approved again in specific form by the Apostolic Constitution, A.C. of Pope Pius P.P. the Ninth. Umbra Tilem. Verse 3. At the commandment of the Second Vatican Ecumenical Council, an appropriate renewal of our way of life was undertaken according to the mind of the conciliar decrees. Our separation from the world and the exercises proper to the contemplative life being most carefully preserved. As a result, the general chapter of 1971 approved and promulgated the R.S. Renewed Statutes, which were revised and corrected with the cooperation of all the members of the Order. Order, Order with capital O. To bring them into conformity with the Code of Canon Law promulgated in 18, 1983, these statutes were again revised and divided into two parts, of which the first, containing books one through four, comprises the constitutions of the order, book one through four. We, therefore, the humble brothers Andrew here, prior of the Grand Chartreuse, and the other members of the general chapter in 1989, approve and confirm these present statutes. We do not, however, wish the earlier statutes especially the more ancient, to be forgotten. Rather, uh -huh, we desire uh -huh, that although they are no longer, they no longer have force of law, their spirits may live on in our present observance. Amen. Cheers to that. In conclusion, mm -hmm. verse 4. Considering how God has graciously deigned from the beginning till the present day, to foster, guide, and protect the Carthusian family, supplying us in abundance with everything leading to our salvation and perfect perfection, we exhort and beseech through the divine mercy and goodness all the professed and members of our order baby's crying, to strive each in his own vocation, the task, no, and task, we exhort and beseech through the divine mercy and goodness, divine goodness, all the professed and members of our order to strive, each in his own vocation and task, 
to respond with all possible gratitude to such paternal generosity and benevolence on the part of our Lord, our God. This we will achieve if we labor faithfully and carefully in the regular observance handed down to us by these statutes so that our exterior conduct being rightly and fittingly ordered and cultivated, we may the more ardently seek and more quickly find, yes, please, the more perfectly possess God himself in the depths of our souls. And thus, with the Lord's help, we may be enabled to attain to the perfection of love, which is the aim of our profession and the whole monastic life, and through it to obtain beatitude eternal. End of chapter 1. Prologue to the Statutes of the Carthusian Order. We'll be right back with Chapter 2. Celestior, thank you for listening. Which one should I pick? Smoking or that's what I like? I, I don't know. 
smoking first. It's got one, 139 million views. Wait a people. minute, this love started off so tender, so sweet. But now she got me smoking out the window. <laughs> oh yeah, Bruno. Sing it, Bruno. Sing it. Oh no! Oh no! All right, that's enough, Bruno. That's 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 more than enough. Thanks. Thanks. All right, no more Bruno. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Okay, here we go. Chapter two. Guise, praise of life in solitude. Those monks who have praised solitude wish to bear witness to a mystery whose riches they have indeed experienced, but whose full penetration is reserved for heaven alone. For in solitude, there is ever being enacted the great mystery of Christ and his church, of which Our Lady is the ex outstanding exemplar, Our Lady, but which lies hidden in, ex in, ex in its entirety in the depths of every faithful soul, where to its unfolding solitude greatly contributes. Hence, one should seek in the following chapter, taken from Guise's customs, as it were, sparks of light thrown off from the soul of him to whom the Holy Spirit entrusted the compilation of the first laws of our order. For these words of our fifth prior, while they do indeed interpret sacred scripture in the vein, V-E-I-N, of ancient allegory, nevertheless, when rightly understood, attain sublime truth, which links us. We enjoy the same grace with our early fathers. Verse 2 of chapter 2. In praise of solitude, to which we have been called in a special way, we will say but little, since we know that it has already obtained enthusiastic recommendation from many saints and wise men of such great authority that we, do, we are not worthy to follow in their steps. Verse 3, for as you know, in the Old Testament, and still more so in the New, almost all God's secrets of major importance and hidden meaning were revealed to his servants, not in the turbulence of the crowd, but in the silence 
of solitude. And you know, too, that these same servants of God, when they wish to penetrate more profoundly some spiritual truth, or to pray with greater freedom, or to become a stranger to things earthly in an ardent elevation of the soul, nearly always fled the hindrance of the multitude for the benefits of solitude. Number four, thus, to illustrate by some examples, when seeking a place for meditation, Isaac went out to a field alone. And this, one may assume, was his normal place and not an isolated incident. Likewise, it was when Jacob was alone, having dispatched his retinue ahead of him, that he saw God face to face and was favored with a blessing and a new and better name. Thus receiving more in one moment of solitude than a whole, than in a whole life time of social contact. Number five, scripture also tells us how Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, 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 anyways, esteemed solitude and how conducive they found it to an ever deeper penetration of the divine secrets. And note, too, uh, what perils constantly surrounded them when they were among men. And how God visited them when alone. Number six, overwhelmed by the spectacle of God's indignation, Jeremiah too sat alone. He asked that his head might be a fountain, his eyes a spring for tears to mourn the slain of his people and that he might the more freely give himself to this holy work, he exclaimed, Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's shelter. Unquote. Clearly implying that he could not do this in a city. And thus indicating what an impediment companions are to the gift of tears. Jeremiah also said, It is good for a man to await the salvation of God in silence. 
unquote, which longing solitude greatly favors. And he adds, it is good also for the man who has borne the yoke from early youth, unquote. A very consoling text for us, many of whom have embraced this vocation from early manhood. And yet again, he speaks, saying, The solitary will sit and keep silence. For he will lift himself above himself. Unquote. Here, the prophet makes reference to nearly all that is best in our life. Peace. Solitude. an ardent thirst for the things of heaven. Seven. Later, as an example of the supreme patience and perfect humility of those formed in this school, Jeremiah speaks of, quote, jeering of the multitude and cheek buffeted in scorn, bravely endured. Unquote. Verse 8. Number 8. John the Baptist, greater than whom, the Savior tells us, has not risen among those born of women is another striking example of the safety and value of solitude. Trusting not in the fact that divine prophecy had foretold that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and that he would go before Christ the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah nor in the fact that his birth had been miraculous and that his parents were saints. He fled the society of men as something dangerous and chose the security of desert solitude. And in actual fact, as long as he dwelt alone in the desert, he knew neither danger nor death. Moreover, the virtue and merit he attained there were amply attested by his unique call to baptize Christ and by his acceptance of death for the sake of justice. For schooled in sanctity, in solitude, he alone of all men become worthy to wash Christ. He who washes all things clean and worthy too to undergo prison bonds and death itself in the cause of truth. Number nine. 
Jesus himself, God and Lord, whose virtue was above both the assistance of solitude and the hindrance of social contact, wished, nevertheless, to teach us by his example. So, before beginning to preach or work miracles, he was, as it were, proved by a period of fasting and temptation in the solitude of the desert. Similarly, Scripture speaks of him leaving his disciples and ascending the mountain alone to pray. Then, there was that striking example of the value of solitude as a help to prayer when Christ, just as his passion was approaching, left even his apostles to pray alone. A clear indication that solitude is to to be preferred for prayer even in the company of apostles. Okay, last verse. I'm going to take a break. Verse 10. We cannot hear Passover in silence, a mystery that merits our deepest consideration. The fact that the same Lord and Savior of mankind deigned to live as the first exemplar of our Carthusian life when he retired alone to the desert and gave himself to prayer and the interior life. Treating his body hard with fasting, vigils, and other penances, and conquering the devil and his temptations with spiritual arms. All right, two more, and then we're at the end of the chapter 11. And now, dear reader, ponder and reflect on the great spiritual benefits derived from solitude by the holy and venerable fathers who? Paul, who? Anthony, who? Hilarion, (laughs) and Benedict, and others beyond number. And you will readily agree that for tasting the spiritual savor of psalmody, for penetrating the message of the written page, for kindling the fire of fervent prayer, for engaging in profound meditation, for losing oneself in mystic contemplation, for obtaining the heavenly dew 
of purifying tears. Nothing is more helpful than solitude. Number 12. The reader should not rest content with the above examples in praise of our vocation. Let him gather together many more, either from present experience or from the pages of sacred scripture. We'll leave it here for the end of chapter two of book one. Chapter two, Guise's praise, praise of life in solitude. Fasting, so I'm breezing through this. Chapter 3 of Book 1. Book 1 The Cloister Monks. Chapter 3. The founding fathers of our type of monastic life were followers of a star from the East. The example, namely, of those early Eastern, with a capital E, monks, who, with the memory of the blood shed by the Lord, not long before still burning within them, thronged to the deserts to lead lives of solitude and poverty of spirit. Accordingly, the cloistered monks who seek the same goal, must do as they did. They must retire to deserts remote from men, to cells removed from the noise of the world, and even of the mon mon monastery itself. And they must hold themselves in a particular way, alien from all worldly news, Number two, the monk who continues faithfully in his cell and lets himself be molded to it will gradually find that his whole life tends to become one continual prayer. But he cannot attain to this repose except at the cost of stern battle, both by living austerely in fidelity to the law of the cross and willingly accept the tribulations by which God will try him as gold in the furnace. In this way, having been cleansed in the night of patience and having been consoled and sustained by assiduous meditation of the scriptures and having been led by the Holy Spirit into the depths of his own soul, 
he is now ready not only to serve God, but even to cleave to him in love. Number three, a certain amount of manual work should also be done, not merely for an hour's relaxation, but chiefly because this Submission of the body to the common lot of mankind helps to conserve and nourish joy and spiritual things. Ah. Each monk, therefore, is given all the tools that he needs to avoid his having to leave cell. since this is in no way permitted except when the community is meeting in church or cloister or on occasion laid down by rule. Nevertheless, in the measure that the way of life we have embraced is more austere, we are the more strictly bound to observe poverty in all we use, for we must imitate the poverty of Christ if we wish to share in his abundance. Number four, being united by love for the Lord, by prayer and by zeal for solitude, let the Father show themselves to be true disciples of Christ, not merely in name, but in deed. Let them be zealous for mutual love, living in harmony, forbearing one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, so that together they may, with one voice, glorify God. Number five, let the fathers keep in mind the close union in Christ that they have with the brothers. And remember that it is thanks to them that they are enabled to offer pure prayer to the Lord in the peace and solitude of their selves. Let them remember, too, that their priesthood is for the service of the church, and in particular, of those members close to them, namely the, pro the brothers in their community, outdoing one another and showing honor. Let fathers and brothers live in love, which is the bond of perfection and the foundation as well as the summit of any life dedicated to God. Number six, to all his sons, both fathers and brothers, 
It is the prior's, with a capital P as a title, task to mirror and love, no, to mirror the love of our Heavenly Father, uniting them in Christ so as to form one family and so that each of our houses may really be what Guius's terms of Carthusian terms a Carthusian church. Number seven. All this finds its source and support in the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the efficacious sign of unity. It is also the center and high point of our life, as well as the spiritual food for our exodus in solitude, by which through Christ we return to the Father. Throughout the entire liturgical cycle, Christ prays both for us as our priest and in us as our head. Hence, it is that we may hear our voices in him and his voice in us. The night office is in accordance with our ancient practice fairly long, though never beyond the limits of discretion. In this way, the samadhi, like psalm melody, nourishes our interior devotion and enables us to give ourselves, in addition, without fatigue or loss of interest, the secret prayer of the heart. Number eight. It is an old custom of ours in which we recognize a wonderful gift of God's loving kindness that every cloister monk is called to the sacred ministry of the altar. In this, we see the harmony to which Paul VI bore witness that exists between the sacred dato and the monastic consecration. For after the example of Christ, the monk likewise becomes both a priest and a sacrifice whose fragrance is pleasing to God. And through this association in the Lord's sacrifice, 
he shares in the unsearchable richness, unsearchable riches of his heart. Last paragraph, number nine. Since our order is totally dedicated to contemplation, it is our duty to maintain strictly our separation from the world. Hence, we are accepted from all pastoral ministry, no matter how urgent the need for active apostolate is, so that we may fulfill our special role in the mystical body of Christ. Let Martha have her act, act, active ministry. Let Martha have her active ministry. Very praiseworthy indeed. Yet, not without solitude and agitation. Agitation? Nevertheless, let her bear with her sister as she follows in the steps of Christ. In stillness knows that he is God, purifies her spirit, prays in the depths of her soul, seeks to hear what God may speak within her, and thus tastes and sees in the splendor measure possible though but faintly in a dark mirror. How good the Lord is, and also pours forth prayer both for Martha herself and for all who, like her, labor actively in the service of the Lord. In this, Mary is not only a most just judge, but also a very faithful advocate, the Lord himself, who deigned not alone to defend, but even to praise her way of life, saying, Mary has chosen the best part, which shall not be taken from her. With these words, he excused her from involving herself with the solitude and agitation of Martha, however pious and excellent they might be. End of chapter 3 The Cloister Monks We'll be right back with chapter 4. Thank you for listening to Javine Grooving On Up with your host, Celestior. To help us maintain doing this, we are praying for direction, O Lord for Martha, and for Mary. Amen. Shall we kickstart this or not? That's my question. Because it is, we put the fun in GoFundMe. 